When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of The Next Big Trade. I don't actually think that we're going to have this persistent inflation because if we had inflation prints next year like we had this year, it would imply massive increases in energy prices that are unsustainable for the global economy. Hi everyone and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. Enjoy the show. This week we're joined by Warren Pies of 314 Research. Prior to founding 314 in 2020, Warren led Ned Davies Research's Energy and Commodity Strategy Group. Hi, Warren. How's it going? Good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we can fix that. <laughs> we, can, we can ruin that day easily. All right. So, so Warren, Frank Frank is my producer, and uh, Frank is uh, he's a, he has a blessed life. He has almost nothing to do because, you know, he, I, I do all my research but he tells me that uh, you have worked as an attorney specializing in regulatory approvals. How come you switched out of that? The really short answer is I hated it. I hated it. I, I thought that. I thought you had to have hated it. <laughs> right. <laughs> definitely yeah. hated that. It was like I told you, is I uh, for a long time I thought I was depressed, and I realized I just hated my job. It's hard to be it's hard to be happy when you hate your career. So. You know, I've had what I call Sunday feeling many times in jobs. That's where, for some reason, on a Sunday, you feel miserable and you can't really work out why. It's always a job. It's always a job. Yeah, and then it kind of reverses once you get a job you enjoy and you, you, you get to that Sunday night and you're like kind of excited for the markets to open. It's a totally different feeling. So, uh, Yeah, that's when you get your, your positions right. Um, for many of us, the position is not necessarily right on a Sunday night. You can be lying awake at work, like worrying. And he also tells me that you owned, operated, and sold a set of self-storage properties. How did that happen? Why did you stop doing it? Uh, it was kind of a one-off opportunity that presented itself uh, to me and a couple partners of mine. And it was a great learning experience. Um we ended up uh, kind of getting some properties that were underperforming, let's put it that way. And so we kind of worked to turn it around. We turned it around, got the the occupancy up, and then sold them. And the, we uh, actually executed the letter of intent on the election day, 2016. So I remember not sleeping much that night because when once Trump started looking like he was going to win, bond market went crazy. And I was like, oh, man, this whole deal is going to get blown up. So there was a lot of lessons in that. But yeah, that was another adventure of mine. But the deal didn't blow up, right? It didn't blow up, but we did end up having to uh, sweat it out a little bit. Oh, did they ask you to sweeten it or something? 
we sweetened it a little bit. It was <laughs> you learn the, the the power of discount rates uh, really quickly. There right, right. When you're doing in the the low the low cap rate world that we were in. Now, I think that business worked out really well. Like people have have been you know have made a lot of money, but it's a dirty business. I think uh, like a tough. It's tough. It's not glamorous. Uh, it's not glamorous at all. I was lucky not to have to do the day to day stuff there. Um, I was still doing my, my work with uh, Ned Davis Research at that point in time. All right. So you put up the money and somebody else had to get down with the customers. Yeah, I mean, I did little things. I worked with the consultants and stuff like that, but it was like I kept my hands clean more or less. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, like a, there's a lot of money in dirty businesses, but you do, you do have to clean up afterwards. It's messy. So here's the exciting bit. Tell us about your next big trade. What is the next big trade for you? Well, I mean, broadly speaking, there's a lot of potential trades out there in my view. But I think if we're going to say, what is, what's something that we could talk about today that's going to have stability and work uh, on both sides for the next two to four years, I think you want to be long, high quality stocks and quality in this case, we're, we're talking the academic factor for the quant factor quality. You want to be long that factor. And I think you want to pair that with a overweight energy equity exposure. And, and I believe that energy quality is going to have that you know positive beta to the market more or less. And I think energy is going to act as a hedge. The idea being that I do think that uh, inflation rates, as we look to next year, are set to come down aggressively. Uh, and I see this period of time as very similar to the post-tech bubble 2000 to 2005 period where we had the deflating tech bubble and, and the rise of a new secular bull market in the commodity space. I think that we have a similar kind of intersection this time. And so you're hedging your risk on the CPI. That CPI doesn't do it. I think it's going to do with the energy exposure. And you're, you're kind of distilling out the best parts of the market while, you know, eliminate getting out of the uh, kind of messy tech meme stuff that, you know, actually is a, an overvalued stuff that's really occupying a large part of the market uh, right now. And so I, that's the, the trade for me is the long quality paired with long energy. It sounds like it should just double your, your long exposure, but I expect these things to work as some kind of hedge uh, going forward. Two longs make a right. I couldn't resist. Forgive me, I <laughs> that's the that's that logic checks out i think <laughs> so let's flesh this out a bit more why is do you expect quality as a a rigorously defined factor uh in a factor analysis framework why do you expect that to be the the risk adjusted long position you want to have well number one uh we talked you and i before and you had said you're a pessimist and i'm a pessimist and my partner we're both have to get over our pessimism. And a big part of um, a big part of that is working through historic data and trying to uh, come up with strategies where we can participate in the upside but eliminate the big downside moves. Uh, and quality is a great factor for that. It's it's a it, it's the ultimately we have our own stock selection system at 314 research. We call it a full cycle trend system. And it's full cycle trend because we're looking across multiple years and we want to find stocks that can, uh, you know, their fundamentals can hold in through a whole economic cycle. So 
that's underlying that system is the quality factor. So, but you've got to define it for people who are not as familiar with factor analysis. Well, quality is a little bit of a, uh, unlike value and low vol and some other factors, it, it doesn't have an official definition, but we, we really focus on uh, return on capital and free cash flow volatility. Specifically in our definition, we look at earnings and cash flow downside volatility. So we don't really care. We don't penalize any of the stocks in our universe for upside volatility. If you're able to grow earnings, as long as you don't give that back in the next phase of the cycle. And we want to look back on a multi-year basis. So we're looking at like a five-year look back period when we we run our analysis. And that's just quality. You can add some some things to it, like a, a trend overlay, but just for the purposes of this discussion, we'll stick to just quality. So we really want to look for return on capital, high return on capital, plus earnings downside volatility that's low. So screened for drawdowns, but on earnings, screened for earnings reversals. Exactly, exactly. So I was looking through, so you sent me a lot of pieces, um, which is nice. I always like it because that way I get to trawl through them looking for things I can pick holes with because that's the kind of way I roll. Okay. Um, and I, I particularly liked a phrase you used in one of the pieces. You, you had a piece you titled Bear Market Rally or New Bull, which I think is like, it, it was a bit, it is a big question right now. It was the question a couple of weeks ago as well. And you said, the phrase you used was, we have to open our minds to the possibility that the lows are in. And I really like that formulation because it's not the same as saying the lows are definitely in. What you're doing is asking us to consider the case where they might be. And doing that kind of prepares the mind for that scenario and what you do. Like, I do better if I've gamed out a situation before it arrives. I'm more likely to pull the triggers in a prompt fashion. I'm more likely to figure out what I'm, I'm meant to be doing right. I'm, I'm less likely to screw up. That's, that's my historical and you know experience. So the thing that occurred to me is because I am, I am a bit pessimistic at the moment. Why isn't the other side of the distribution also true? Why couldn't you also say that S&P 3200, which is a level that some of my technically-minded friends suggest, why can't that also be a, a fair possibility we should consider? I mean, it's a possibility, I guess. I, nothing, you can't say never say never. It's just not it, – it's not – a a very high probability outcome. I think you and I, when you're, when we talk about open our minds to the possibility, we're dealing in probabilities. That's what we have mm -hmm. to do. Everything is a probable, probabilistic kind of decision tree here. And, you know, when I look at, uh, valuations, technicals, um, his, historic drawdowns, uh, you really to get down to 3,200 from starting point of 4,800, uh, you, you need, uh, you usually will need some kind of systemic issue uh, to get there. And let me also say one other thing about that, which we were, we've been bearish. So it's not like we've been Pollyanna. We've been bearish all year. And then on June 16th at the lows, we advised our clients to put about 25 to 33% of their capital back into the market. So we were at 36.50 when we released that report on June 16th. And the the thing is when you get to let's say we 32 is the possibility when you get to 3650 you know you better be able so if you're telling me the ultimate downside the really bad scenario is another what 10 or 12% lower 
in this game, you better be able to stomach a 10 or 12% drawdown ultimately. So I think you put your, your it's all about upside versus downside from 3,600. Uh, you know, we, we saw upside to 42, 4,300, which is where we topped out on this rally. Uh, I don't really, it's hard. Could we go down to 34? Yeah, but I just, uh, I'm not trying to, and when we released the report, we said this probably isn't the absolute low happened to be it. But, uh, you know, I, I think you have to play the probabilities and you have to look at it and say, okay, 32, you're not going to win any awards for pick bottom ticking. It's probably not going to happen. I think you get close enough that upside outweighs the downside. And that's when you push your chips back into the middle of the table. And I think an awful lot of people hadn't thought through their own risk reward when stocks are a bit cheaper. Like we have an entire ecosystem of professional investors out there looking to help people retire, right? You're not going to retire with a big bag of cash. That's not going to, that's not going to make retirement happen for you. You're going to need something which has a positive return, assuming stocks are that thing, right? You're going to need some investment. So there was a lot of people with cash to, to put to work and they're really good reasons. Right? But uh, $36.50, you nailed the lows, right? We did, but it, you know that's luck too. It's it's just we, our work suggested that we didn't think we'd seen the absolute low. I'm still somewhat you know skeptical that those lows will hold. I don't know, but if we skip back to that same level, unless something major changes in the macro and backdrop, I would still be hitting that bid. I would be I'd be or I mean I'd be buying the, the market there at that point, and you know and making making moves. I think that you know the downside from there. You're really just trying. You're you're trying to get too cute, is what I'd say. Right. If you're waiting right. to get lower. No, that. it's true. You got to if you if you're not going to buy thirty eight hundred or thirty even thirty six fifty, then what are you waiting for? Because how what makes you think you're going to get within ten percent of that low? It's it's very unlikely. So you'd have to have a really apocalyptically bearish scenario to not touch it. The thing is, I just was doing some pencil numbers, you know, back of the envelope nonsense. And I was thinking, okay, let's take 250 uh, earnings as uh, as a consensus earnings for this year. I don't know how far off I am. I'm, I'm a bond guy. You'd be able to tell real quick. 250 is the consensus. Well, roughly 250 is the consensus for two, two, 2023, which is, I think, what the market's trading off of anyways. But yeah. Okay. So, and then I mark that down and say they're wrong by 25%. So I get to 200. Now, how unlikely is a 25% miss or something like that for an earnings estimate? Is that really so unprecedented that people get it wrong by that much? Uh, no, it's true. It, it, when you go into economic inflection points, you actually do see a huge, you know, I, I can't sit here and say, no, that doesn't happen. It does happen around in economic inflection points. And I would say the, our recession probability model and all of the stuff we look at says the recession is coming early next year, end of this year. Uh, all the yield curves are saying that even the real yield curve has inverted at this point in time. So, I mean, I, I think that you have to be cognizant of potential downside in earnings, um, you know, and so that's, it, it happens. I, in, but at the same time, there are countervailing factors that we've never seen before. And this is something we pointed out to our clients in the, in the note that, um, and why we think that 3,200 number and why we think the alt, the really big, uh, left tail has been kind of uh, eliminated is you have a huge remaining 
stimulus that's been pushed out into the economy for, from the post-pandemic timeframe, we calculate about $2.5 trillion of excess savings that's gone into consumers on, onto their, their balance sheets. And when when you think about that, there's really no way to to compare that to any other historic period. I mean, savings rates, yeah, are starting to fall now. And some of the that's a stock versus flow issue, though. You know, the stock is huge. Yeah, the flow is starting to turn negative, but you're forgetting that huge stock of savings that's been pushed out into the economy. I mean, I think that that's a huge cushion for the economy and a cushion for for earnings. And even if we have a recession, we're talking about pretty strong nominal growth. At this point in time, uh, you know, we're, we're the people who say we're in recession now, they're looking at real GDP and they're basically subtracting rearview mirror CPI from nominal growth. And, and so I just don't think this is this is not 2008 to me, which if you want to get to that point, I think you have to you basically go back to 2008 and say this is 2008. I see the same thing with the housing market. Big trade we were gonna we were gonna recommend and during that that bottom of in June we did we did put on some long home builder mm-hmm. positions for our clients to close those out at this point. But I think you fade the housing fear too. The housing fear is way overdone. Uh, you know the scars from two thousand eight are still in society because you and I and everybody else who's trading this market lived through that and they know how painful it was and they look at that and they say oh my god. I, I think we're gonna have a cooling off of housing and we need it, uh, but. It really, it's a rate story when I look at it. You know, it's all a rate story. So I, you've got to remind me to come back to this housing question. I will take the other side to you. I have a lot of sympathy for the line you've taken on housing because I looked at some of those housing multiples and they were not demanding. Uh, I got a, a colleague boss, uh, Julian Brigden, uh, over at uh, MI2, who is my boss or colleague, and uh, he takes a much more bearish view of housing. And there are reasons why. A lot of it is because there's hidden spec in housing. There's spec that people didn't see coming. It was nothing like 2008, but a lot more. I recognize after the event that there's more spec in that system than than met the eye. That doesn't mean that house builders are necessarily a problem, but it doesn't doesn't make me very bullish house prices. Yeah, no, and I mean, that would be a distinction I'd make. I think house prices have to cool off, but, you know, if you're looking at Case-Shiller, and I don't know, Case-Shiller is kind of a weird index. Yeah, but if it's, you're looking it's at, not helpful for Right, this, for, for, but if for you're trading. looking at, and if you're looking at Case-Shiller, we've, we've dug into this a bit, I think you get, you give some of that back, some of the, the, the house appreciation that we've seen, that's going to come off and that'll be healthy. But um, when you look, loan to value ratios and underwriting standards and, and you look into the banking system there is just nothing that we saw in 2008 i mean it's a totally different market i understand there's some spec buyers but alt- the other side of that is we've had a multi-year underbuild coming into this period of time oh sure absolutely but that means you you know i didn't want to talk about housing yet because i really wanted to go back to your right, s&p okay, forecast because for me the s&p call is like the big call it's a big bread and butter call and uh, the housing call is is kind of useful and useful for a lot of people, particularly if you're thinking about buying a house. But it, it's not the bread and butter call. And- you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
I wanted to paint this bearish picture to explain why I'm biased in the bear direction rather than, you know, the other side of things. And part of it is because of what appears to be quite a cataclysmic energy disruption that's taking place globally. I think the United States is probably one of the least affected countries uh, globally from that energy disruption. But that doesn't mean it won't wash up here as well. Some of the effects won't be felt here. Some of the things I'm seeing coming out of Europe, I'm just suffering from enormous cognitive dissonance. If your heating bills are up eight times on a previous year, the consumption coming out of those markets, discretionary consumption is going to absolutely collapse. And uh, I think people don't know that yet because they haven't seen the bills and they're only just getting the bills. And then you have... You know, any energy intensive business in the Eurozone that's been operating, a lot of them are shutting down simply because if you, you don't run a pneumonia plant at these levels of natural gas, you just don't do it. If you're paying this for natural gas, you, you can't make money. And so you're going to see these effects and they'll have knock-on effects and secondary effects, collateral damage effects. And I, I can't help but think the scale of these shifts are so big that we haven't taken care. And then you you talked about the Fed's intervention in markets and you pointed out nominal GDP is going to be... True, I agree with all that. I agree that they shoved in all sorts of paper credits. They, we call them money, apparently. But they, they didn't shove in any productive capacity. They, they just don't have the capacity to do that. So, you know, the first time around, that created some inflation. It makes me think that we're going to see much more persistent inflation than the market is currently priced for. And the persistence of inflation means the Fed is more hawkish and hawkish for longer. And then all of a sudden, like if you're optimistic on 10-year treasuries, it's, it's hard to maintain that optimism, right? So that's kind of the texture of the bear case. What have I got wrong? Well, I think that, well, number one, I would acknowledge well, many of the things you're you're flagging here. And I would... That's part of why we want to be overweight energy. Number one, I think just set aside the really doom scenario that could we, we still have not totally eliminated at this point. Set aside the doom scenario. Uh, we believe that energy equities have been discounted over this last 10, you know, say call 2010 to 2020 period where we saw basically horrible returns from the group. Um, we think that there's going to be a re-rating higher to more traditional multiples. As we saw, we saw basically horrible management, low returns, poor, negative cash flow, and this idea that we're going to eliminate or we're going to eliminate fossil fuels in the near future. All that conspired to, you know, make the group trade at a discount. And I think that's going to kind of unwind on top of or setting aside, you know, the the all the potential spikes that we get in on the, on the commodity side. So that's number one. It's why we we like that trade on a multi-year basis. And it's also, I think, why we, what you pointed out, why we think it's a good hedge to your general market exposure. So that's the, I agree with you to a certain extent. And I don't know, uh, this is my kind of longtime market that I studied uh, and, and was so involved in the energy market and the oil market. And I can't say I know what's going to happen. I mean, you have China lockdowns right now uh, on the demand side. You have SPR at what you know, almost one and a half million barrels a day right now. That's supposed to be up in October. 
You have Iranian oil coming back into the market potentially, maybe, maybe, uh, and they have a ton of floating storage that would hit the market immediately in a flood. Then you have Saudi Arabia who doesn't want to cede market share to or market prices to Iran. And so you, you have on top of the fact that sanctions kick in if nothing changes in the end of the year. So I don't think I can remember a market that has more major you know, massive issues facing it and more uncertainty than the the oil and energy markets right now. So I'm sympathetic to that and to the volatility that it, it brings. The where the one thing I would say that I think you have wrong is that as we move forward from here, assuming we don't get a super spike in oil prices, which it's possible, which is why you want to be long energy, but assuming you don't get a super spike in oil, we're set to come into February and March of next year in the comps on oil prices, on gas prices, on energy across the inner, that's that part of, we've had our studies say energy has been driving 40% of the year over year increase in CPI this year so far. It was cars before that. All these things are set to roll over next year and the comps are going to be awful. So I think by the time we get to next year, I see a path for us getting CPI down to 2%. If we just hit the, if, if just the right things happen and we don't have a big spike energy or we just stay in the nineties like we are right now, maybe world governments continue to, to flood the market with SPR. There's so many things could happen. But if you just assume baseline from where we're at, we get a major energy is no longer exerting upside pressure on CPI, it's now pulling CPI lower. And I think that's the that's the key is that um, I don't actually think that we're going to have this persistent inflation because if we had inflation prints next year like we had this year, it would imply massive increases in energy prices that are unsustainable for the global economy that would uh, collapse the global economy. It would, so it's just, it's kind of like certain these, the bear case where we're arguing for a deep recession and this huge spike in energy and a tight fed based on all that. I find it to be incongruent that that's not really, that that all that stuff happening together is, is highly unlikely. So I've got a lot of sympathy for that. That which cannot be sustained will not be sustained. However, that's true also for insolvency. Uh, companies which are in an insolvent position will eventually go bust. And guess what? They do. <laughs> they do. And I think that's a situation we might... So a point-by-point attempted rebuttal, and uh, usual disclaimer applies, God, I'm often wrong. And uh, God, Lord knows it can cost me a lot of money if I'm too stupid enough to cut my trades. So do, do bear all this in mind. But point number one, if we had spare capacity in energy in Saudi, for example, uh, then uh, they would have used it. They would definitely, even if even if Joe Biden has pissed them off, they're not going to not export an extra million barrels a day just to spite Joe Biden. That That's not how this works. I don't believe there is any significant spare capacity. If the, if the spare capacity it can only come into being from significant investment, and you made exactly the right point, ESG, uh, not, not to dismiss it, I think it's a great idea. It's just that it did dampen long-term investment in hydrocarbons. And, you know, there are problems with sig- having scale investments in renewables. 
And we're seeing those problems now. These are it's kind of the result of that. Secondly, Russia's 10% of global energy. Um, Russian exports are down a little bit because gas, right? Pipeline gas to Europe is 40% of total gas to Europe. There's almost no way of them getting that gas to a market apart, from, you know, without the pipeline. So to the extent that gas has gone, that's global energy that's been removed from the global energy market. There's no real substitute for that. They don't have LNG facilities to move any of that gas any other way. That means uh, there's a really good chance that Europe is going to do this enormous switch to, to oil. And, you know, that may be coming. And I, I'm, I'm with you. Supposing these prices are the, at the top in energy, that drops out of inflation. But I'm so old. We used to use this phrase, second round effects in Europe. Like, I hated the phrase through the 90s, but that every European central banker would say second round effects because that made them look clever. But I think it's a great time to to bring that phrase back in. There's a whole bunch of workers uh, who did not receive 10% pay rises. Um, inflation was 10%. Uh, unless we're going to mark their wages down, they're going to push back and there's going to be a fight. That fight is going to give you some kind of second round effect. And it might be the second round effect is only 0.6 of the initial reduction in real wages, but it's not going to be zero. Um, and the same is true for housing equivalents. The same is true for rents. When you have a bad housing market, rent squeeze. That was the lesson of 2008. I think rents are going to continue squeezing. So for those reasons, I, I, I'm absolutely sure. Well, actually, I'm not absolutely sure because, you know, war. Um, but I'm pretty sure that we've probably seen the high in CPI. But the market's got two-year break-evens at 2% here enough, two and two and change. Uh, Five-year break-evens, two and a bit and change. That's your bogey, not 8%. So lower inflation, if it comes down to 6%, I don't think the Fed's in a position to, to cut rates. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that it's hard for me to... You know, if you're going to tell the bond market it's wrong, you're kind of pissing against the wind in my yes. <laughs> if you're going to, what does the bond market know that, I mean, I can see a path to 2% inflation. That's what I'm saying is I see it. And that's what the bond market's telling me. I think that, and I don't think that's consensus. I think you've had, and I've been bringing up break-evens for, you know, years. And, you know, everyone was telling me, well, QE, the tips market, you don't get any signal from break-even. No, that's over. We're in QT now. The, these markets are liquid. And they have major signal to them. I mean, there's so many different products that trade off this. And so to me, the collapse in one-year break-evens, because what we saw coming into this crisis, I mean, we're watching it closely. We were putting the whole count, all, the entire break-even curve out there and saying, look at what's happening. The market sees we were at 7% one-year break-evens right after the invasion. And we've fallen 500 basis points at this mm -hmm. point, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. And I think that's an, an extremely bullish development for the market. I don't, you know, I, I think that that forecast out the markets, what the markets uh, in the fact that we've, the, the Fed said, you know, we've had different Fed uh, presidents say we need to see the entire yield curve move into real territory. Well, we're here. The entire, we're getting real yields across the yield curve based off break evens. And what's more, the real yield curve is now inverted. So I look at all this and say the Fed is way closer to the end than the beginning based on all these objective metrics. They are venturing into the land of policy mistake at this point, in my view. So if they kept going too far and there's reasons why I could see that happening, 
then yeah, that would be a problem. But uh, the, the 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 thing is, if the more they in, hike rates here in 2022, you have more ammo. If the CPI does come into where I'm talking about next year to feed that bullish case. And a little bit of this is me playing devil's advocate because there's a lot of uncertainty, but you have to see the pessimistic side. You have to be able to open your mind to what could go right. You know, no, you, I, absolutely. All the bears could be standing there being like, I, I thought earnings were going to collapse. And I thought earnings and the bears told, were saying earnings were going to collapse last quarter. They didn't collapse. No, even absolutely. Even end of 2023 estimates are, have gone from 250 to 244. Uh, in our model, where we say we think that the market's fair value is about 3900 based on interest rates and earnings, we marked earnings, end of 2023 earnings, down from 250 to 220 And I think that's where they're going to end up. But I don't see the evidence yet to push them lower than that. If we get the evidence, then, you know, I think you react. But uh, it's not there yet. I think that's a really cogent counter-argument. Where I guess my intuition differs because... Uh, I just see things that don't make sense to me unless there's a lot of bezel, uh, like J.K. Galbraith's bezel in the system. So, for example, leveraged loan markets, um, there are anecdotes. I mean, maybe I make too much of the anecdotes I see, but I think people have been stripping value out of companies. And it makes me want, like, in, in the when the Japanese market turned after a really prolonged bull market, it turned out that a lot of the earnings we saw in Japanese equities back in 89 were related to the real estate market. And a lot of the real estate earnings were related to the equity market. And I, you know, I look at this and I think the analogy is not with 2008. I don't think we have that kind of financial system tipping over problem. I think we have a terms of trade problem like 73, 74. I think what we've got is terms of trade shifting dramatically against those people who import energy and benefiting those countries that export energy. And the problem is when you heap up a whole bunch of money in the Gulf, they buy what they want to buy, right? But it doesn't help you if you're in a market they don't want to buy. And I suspect we're going to have to split the difference here. What will happen is a, a Gulf uh, uh, asset allocation will include a lot of US equities because what the hell, they've got to buy something. Well, that's what they, yeah. I mean, that's, but the, the trends have been for years. And so that money gets recycled and all roads in lead back to uh, domestic markets. I do think that to your point, there is, there's froth. I mean, we've built a lot of froth up over the, you know, zero interest rate, very loose monetary policy. Uh, I mean, we've, it's been, we've gone over it uh, as an industry so much and you know, if you look at the froth that's in the VC market or in the the not unprofitable tech market, I do see parallels to that 2000 bubble uh, bursting, and I, that's what I want to avoid. I think so much of this business is, um, you know, it's not picking the right stocks; it's avoiding the wrong stocks. Hell yeah, you know? so true. And, you know, and I I think what you do that's what goes back to the trade is like I think you know quality quality. Quality stocks plus energy. So this is the portfolio we're talking about. If you just bought quality plus energy, and we have a 10% energy weight, which is double what it is in S&P in this back test. From 2000 to 2005, that portfolio returned 15% per year. The S&P 500 was down 2.5% per year over that same period. That's the post-tech bubble kind of collapse. And that, the, that strategy won by just avoiding the 
the crap basically that was that had to that, that was going to be in a multi-year bear market just because the the reality uh had set in and i think that we're going to have an echo to that and you want to avoid those those areas the, that have been so bid up over these years long duration unprofitable tech whatever you want to call it and they do make up a, a larger market cap uh than most people would like to realize but yeah although this has been a, a bit of a bear in that i've seen a lot of things i shouldn't mention any names to avoid lawsuits but it's not difficult to find stocks that uh were trading at 350 and are now trading at 40 um it really isn't so a lot of that value destruction has already taken place um and if you sidestepped it well done and if you didn't i'm terribly sorry and i shouldn't erase the subject <laughs> so another like the whole idea i should we should do a bit more on this question of hedging uh, long equities with long ex- equities because it's it's kind of it, it there's so many puns like I, I will definitely say that is a texas hedge and it's not just because it's any <laughs> um <laughs> but there's a serious side to this thing and I, I i was discussing this with a colleague and uh he was saying you know it's funny how big an impact a sector which is only five percent of gdp uh, can actually have on the wider economy. And I think the point is exactly that. It's like agriculture. Pro- human progress is where agriculture is a smaller proportion of GDP, not a bigger one. So we've all benefited because we have this surp- we can produce cheap energy with only 5% of GDP. As that number goes up, that's a problem. That's not an advantage. That doesn't minimize the problem. And I, I'm wondering if you're, you're right. This, this is hedging because if energy prices keep going up, everything is going to have a problem and it's going to be a non-linear event. It's, it, it's not going to, you're, you're going to have to model it in a way which we're currently not very good at modeling because it's, it's, it's not data mineable. It's not a, an, an experience we've had since 73 or something like that. Is that, is that you agree? Or what have I said that you'd take issue with? No, I agree with you. And I, I'll take it a step further. When my previous role, I put a chart together. I remember it was, it always was a popular one with clients and something that stuck out to me. It was, we, t- we took commodity, uh, we created a commodity basket or index all the way back into the 1800s and then went forward and we've kind of delineated secular and commodities and stocks. I mean, they do move in these multi-year kind of cycles. And so we delineated secular commodity bull markets and secular stock bull markets and shaded them on a on a chart. And basically what you saw was it was like a checkerboard. When commodities were moving higher in a secular kind of move, uh, stocks were in a secular bear market or, or going sideways, basically, or down. And, and so there is this long running dynamic where if you, you don't want leadership for to be in the commodity space for too long in the equity market, I, I think it's an, it's, it's an inherently unhealthy backdrop for, for the economy. Right? Yeah, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. Not a good thing, a bad thing. In fact, it, what it would smack of. Um, and this is because I'm a, you know, I'm a very bearish person by nature. My glass is generally half empty at the best of times. Um, but, uh, the, the question is, I've been asking myself is what does resource depletion look like? And, um, I think resource depletion looks like farmers demonstrating on their tractors. It looks like oil companies not investing in 
new oil deposits because the rate of return on that investment isn't considered strong enough. Uh, the energy specialist guys I speak to, they talk about energy return on energy. And if your energy return on energy goes low enough, even if your monetary return on energy goes high enough, your economy is in a serious problem. Now, you know, like every, only an idiot talks about Malthusian things. It doesn't happen, right? It, it just hasn't been the case. We usually, human ingenuity figures out the problem. But I wonder if we got a little wait for human ingenuity to figure out the problem because we spent 10 years doing ESG. I do. I mean, you said you thought ESG was a good thing. I, you know, I'll kind of make, I want to set the value judgments aside, but I can say, I think ESG has made basic commodities much more expensive. So to the extent that that's true, maybe it made a lot of people feel good. By, by design, right? That's the idea of it. It's meant to do that. Right. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people who feel better uh, and maybe, you know, it's a psychic kind of um, benefit, but, you know, in the real, very real sense, uh, commodity prices are going to be higher because of that. And I think that you've, you've just had a backdrop where, Number one, I always make this point in the in the oil patch domestically, the first place you look for why capital has not come into that space is mismanagement. Man, you know, the management teams are drilling holes in borrowing money, issuing uh, equity to drill holes and grow production, and that's how CEOs were compensated for many years. And so you, if you compensate a behavior or if you incentivize behavior, you're going to get more of it. So that's that's of- not mismanagement. That's uh, managing to the incentive structure. Right. Yeah. And so that was the, that was it. If you went on any call back in the 2013, 12, 11 timeframe, these companies will tell you how much they're growing production. And it was like, you know, debt adjusted production growth. Even that was, you know, a metric we looked at in the industry. That's not what we're talking about anymore. No one's talking about how much they're growing production. They're talking about how much stock they're buying back, how much debt they're paying off, um, special dividends, uh, what to do with the excess cash flow. And on the table is not new CapEx. It's all returns. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's your perspective on shale? Because um, I did a kind of dive into it and I thought that this was a con. And it probably was a con five to 10 years ago. Uh, not that they don't produce oil, just that they don't produce oil profitably. It's a, so really, I should call it a call option on oil above 60 bucks or above 80 bucks. Is that the right way to look at this? I think so. I think it is. Uh, there's that old phrase, there are no bad assets, only bad prices. And I think it's just shale is, it's an asset. It's a, it's a resource to be tapped into, but it, it's, you know, half cycle economics is half cycle is what they used uh, in all their pitch decks and everything for years. And it didn't wash. I mean, these companies weren't making real money. Yeah, uh, they are. They are making money now. There is there. You know, at these levels, you are seeing positive cash flow out of these these companies, and uh, and so it's a it's a resource. It's just the break evens are much higher than I think the companies led everyone to believe for many years. You know, and so we we think you can just buy the entire energy complex and be okay. But for our 
for our clients, we have been saying, look to Canada because your you know, maintenance CapEx, which is the key metric to look at for these companies, maintenance CapEx for, for the oil production in Canada is, is basically nil. And so versus shale, where you're on a treadmill, basically, where you need to keep pouring money into your wells uh, and into your fields. To yeah, I, I think when I looked at this space, I thought to myself, these people are, are telling me porkies, uh, cockney rhyming slang, porky pies, on the question of how long these wells last, what the sustainable production is per well. And uh, even the three-year number, I, I, you know, I started to question all the, but then this is the thing. You make the point that they were pitching for capital and they were rewarded on how successfully they pitched for capital, not on how successfully they drilled for oil. One important thing also is, and this is, you said at the beginning that the European energy crisis has pretty, that America is more or less immune from it. Because we are exporting so much LNG now, our natural gas prices have gone up to nine bucks. Uh, and for many years, we were at two and even sub two at different points in time. And these shale wells are becoming gassier over time. So that that byproduct gas, the associated gas, they call it, was was kind of uh, you weren't getting much money. You could model at three or four or five dollars. All of a sudden, these these wells look a lot better at nine dollars. That associated gas in the Permian Basin all of a sudden it becomes you know, a much more profitable endeavor. So that's it. You have to model all those carbons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's a little, all a bit depressing because all that gas they pulled out of those wells up to, up to now and for the foreseeable future, they flared it. Mm-hmm. They burned it yep. because they didn't have a profitable way of keeping it. So it's gone. Not that there isn't more to extract, but you've got to build a pipeline for gas to extract it. And, you know, I don't know. This stuff is all a call option to me. None of it should have been taken out of the ground till oil was 120 bucks, if you ask me. But, you know, my opinions are to a penny and it doesn't cost much to get them, so I wouldn't. One observation I've got is energy is now acting like bonds used to act in a balanced portfolio. The structure of the portfolio, you've got energy as a new bonds. Is, is that conscious? Are you guys aware of thinking to yourself, oh, my God, energy is a new bonds? Yeah, well, the bond bonds aren't bonds anymore, right. you know. <laughs> so, bonds are bonds and bonds are moving in lockstep with stocks, and they're not nearly as fun like that. And so, yeah, I, that's exactly what we're seeing. So, we've been talk, we've been hammering on this for since really the entire year. If you do a correlation matrix of all the sectors in the S and P five hundred, the energy sector has a negative correlation to every other sector in the market. And there are no two other sectors with a negative correlation. So you're getting... And therefore, it is a diversifier. Therefore, your long energy position diversifies you. Absolutely. And I think from a quant perspective, seeing that is really enticing. Because what have we seen this year? It's like everything is getting hammered at the same time. It's a horrible environment for asset allocators. Because usually you're looking for, if you're a CTA or if you're a quant, you're looking for that one diversifying asset that moves to a different... uh, that marches to a different beat. The only thing out there right now is energy. And it makes a lot of sense because of all the, the risks that we've laid out uh, across the, the global economy due to energy. So I think this is going to be with us um, in some way, shape, or form for the long term, but as definitely in through spring of next year if you're trying to, to protect your portfolio until we get to those those comps that we talked about uh, around February. You know, something that just occurred to me, because I'm a bit slow, but it, it just occurred to me, and I thought, ah, I didn't. I should have brought this out more. So, how bullish on a scale of one to ten, 
How bullish are you? Because you've recommended long energy as a diversifier. You've recommended quality as a factor defined, you know, a, a rigorously defined statistical element. So you find quality stocks, things that have performed and performed consistency. That actually is not such a, like, if I knew nothing else, I wouldn't describe you as particularly bullish with that outlook. No, I'm not particularly, I'm not a raging bull. You know, I, I think we're trying to do exactly what I said at that one point, was we want to make sure we have sidestep the landmines and find the stocks that, you know, because we talked about what's the big risk of this market? It's earnings falling apart, right? Yeah. So we want to find, number one, we're already pre-screening and pre-selecting for the, the quality stocks that have shown that they can manage their earnings through an entire cycle. So that's number one. We're kind of trying our best to get around that risk. And then energy... Uh, if the big risk to the economy is that we're going to get a spike in energy prices, you're getting that on your hedge that we talked about. And so we're doing our best to construct uh, a trade here that that works. And in what I see, it could be kind of a range-bound market going forward for a little bit of time. Uh, and that's kind of uh, – it's not really a sexy call to say, you know, that maybe we go between 3600 and 4200 for a bit. Uh, but that seems like a, a very likely outcome to me. I think I think you're right to identify that the objective here is to keep your capital intact. If you can get through what I suspect the markets of the next three or four years have in store for you, and you're mostly most of your fur is still unsinged, um, you'll be in a great great position to take advantage of markets going forward. You might well see very cheap assets. But it's about getting through that next two to three years, um, which I think could be quite tricky. Um, should we? Uh, dis- you, you raised the question of housing, which I think you know a lot of people are going to have a lot of interest in it. Um, and you, you, suge- how are you feeling about the home builders now? We, uh, I think they're kind of in no man's land right here because they've come off a bit. And so we, again, I'm not trying to act like we are gurus or whatever, but we had recommended putting on a home builder trade really based on rates. We thought rate mortgage rates had topped back in June. And we put a, a trade on there and some of the ones, our picks were up about 40% and the valuations had run away from us just in a two month period. So we just said, all right, we'll close these, close these out. And since that point, they've kind of come back about half of that. And so I'd say they're in no man's land. Uh, but what I fade, what I think is that housing. I almost want to say housing and energy is a good pair trade, uh, or home builders and energy if you get the right entry points. Because I think they're both areas with secular tailwinds. So I, I think housing. Yeah, we're going to have a soft patch here, and you know we're building in high mortgage rates and we're slowing activity, and I get all that. But I th- see nothing structurally um, wrong with the market. In fact, I think that we've underbuilt for years. And because of the supply constraints that we had through the pandemic, we didn't overbuild. You know, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been that's under construction, but not finished. But when you add it all up, we're still not anywhere close to where we should be, given the underbuild that we've had for all these years. And then you look out and say, demographically, that millennial group is really going to get into that sweet spot of household formation. And everyone knows the millennials have, uh, and this is kind of my cohort, we've all delayed our household formation, starting families, getting married. Well, you're going to get a huge bulge of like 35 to 44-year-olds in the next few years coming from that millennial group. 
And so I think you got uh, have a demographic tailwind on the demand side, and uh, you have an undersupply from years coming off of the housing uh, crash of 2008. Under the surface, you see I see no excess that we that that was marking the 2008 collapse. So yeah, I I think it's an area where you're going to have when this weak spot is behind us, you're going to ultimately continue with the with the growth in housing. And the final thing, this is kind of more ephemeral, but I believe it's real. I think the work from home phenomenon has put more of an emphasis on homes. And I think that the whole pandemic and lockdown experience has kind of re-energized the, um, in especially that millennial group, that desire to have your own place, you know, getting locked in a little apartment stacked one on top of the other, uh, for a year was a pretty bad experience for a lot of people. (laughs) I'm thinking about, I'm imagining what people would have said if they'd found themselves locked down with the 25 year old me. Um, I I would, I would have been homeless. They would have kicked me out. I'm telling you. (laughs) So I, I was in an apartment in 2018 and bought seven acres with the out building and a gym here in 2019. And I'm just all the time I find myself saying, I'm so glad I have space. I was able to work out through the pandemic. I was able to just like go walk out. If I was stuck in an apartment, I don't know. I would have lost my mind. Do you know, it's funny that I did not at any one point say I was able to work out through the pandemic. It's curious, isn't it? <laughs> Different people. I did not work out through the pandemic. I did walk out, yeah, okay. leaving the leaving the wife with the kids to deal with the the kids who would be turned out. Some of them had turned very strange. Let's just say you don't want your three year old son to turn into a five year old post pandemic. They can have strange habits, you know, after that much time away from other boys. I think maybe a lot of boys would like to play with American girl doll accessories but uh, don't have the opportunity. He has two sisters. Um, he's very lucky that way. But the fights about American Girl all accessories can be violent. It can be a little... I can um, only imagine. Yeah, well, you're in a fortunate position that you can only imagine. So, <laughs> right. uh, you know, so I, I like the way you've looked at this question. I'm, I'm a little less optimistic. In fact, uh, you know, the basic principle of markets is a maximization of irony. And it would be ironic if you have an entire millennial generation that gets priced out of housing uh, because they leave rates uh, six. Right now, thirty-year mortgage rates are six and a half percent. I mean that they've the you know the Fed has temp- put a temporary hiatus on millennials buying unless they're inheriting, which could be quite negative for all those millennial parents that have been annoying their kids through the pandemic. <laughs> they're pillows, you know. They can do things to parents. So I can see it both ways. I'm not sure. So I think there's going to be repressed demand, but that repression of demand might be persistent. The the Fed might, you know, it's all about inflation. If the inflation doesn't go away, the Fed isn't going to let you buy houses. You know, the thing, the one thing in the inflation mix that's tough is that you see housing feeding into inflation statistics with about an 18 month lag. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, we already know to get to like two, two and a half percent on the CPI next year, you need to have a lot of negative work from those components that we're pushing higher this year. Um, I think that's possible. Now, housing inflation is going to be with us um, for next year. It's already the dice cast on that. So I do think that, you know, that's a, you, you could see a prolonged, you know, soft period here, but I don't see a collapse is the point. And I think that you get through this and quite honestly, I, 
I think that the odds are really good that mortgage rates have already topped. Um, and at this point, really all the, when you look at the really doom housing bear stuff at the bottom of it all is all just a big mortgage rates are high argument. Yeah, absolutely. So it's true. If mortgage rates fall, all that stuff, we get, all that stuff comes down. And what you're left with is a group of stocks that have, uh, that are pretty cheap and an asset that's undersupplied and have a lot of healthy demand trends on a multi-year basis. So that's what I, I look at it as rates aren't going to stay here. I think that they, they do come down. I think inflation comes uh, down next year and we thread the needle. That's So I am bullish on that. Yeah, I can see why you take that view. I think ultimately, politically, it's unacceptable to have 30-year mortgage rates at 6.5% because it, it's – basically the same as saying to millennials, no house for you. And that isn't going to last through multiple election cycles. Right. And then the, the other thing is we had its chart where we looked at real cost of housing um, over time. And like in real terms, that $2,500 level, which is where we're at right now, we hit that and come down consistently. We've seen that as like a level that we can't really exceed and sustain in this economy. We did that all the time in the 90s, actually, where we would go up to 2,500 in real terms and then come down. And that's all rates. That's not housing prices doing that work. That's all rates. That's all mortgage rates. You know, it's like we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation, the power of interest rates. If we get a, if, you know, today it looks all doom and gloom. If we get a, um, a 200 basis point fall in mortgage rates, a lot of things start, you know, looking a lot better. So I, I would not be in the slightest bit surprised about seeing local declines of up to 20% in housing markets I care about. Like, I don't care about the Florida market. I, you know, but I do care about, say, the Manhattan market or the Boston regional market. And I would say that I, I definitely see the scope for a 25% decline in those prices. Um, I wouldn't care about that because there was a 25% rally in those prices. And not Manhattan, but in the kind of Boston regional market. And because I like the package of long housing uh, and, and long vol and short bonds. Uh, <laughs> and that's what you get when you get a 30 a 30 year fixed rate mortgage against uh, uh, the the house collateral. Um I can definitely see how being long of um the option to switch that mortgage down in 5 years time suddenly kicks in the money by a long way. Um it's just that the next 5 years is tough. And I think that's a, I don't know where we get 25, 20, 25, 15 in, in New York or, but I don't know. Uh, I just think that, you know, we've, we, yeah, we're going to give some of this pandemic boom up, but that's, you know, we're going to give a little bit of that up and we're going to have rates come down, but there's nothing systemic that's going to take place because of that. You know, like we had a, we had a systemic issue coming off of 08. I think we're going to have a little, uh, you know, correction. So I am, I would say in this place, I am more or less Pollyanna. So. <laughs> Pollyanna compared to me, but neither of us yeah. exactly have long hair, though. Let's I'm working really hard at being an optimist. I feel like yeah, you, you know, if that's what the numbers are for. Like, to rule out all the worst-case scenarios, sometimes it's just really hard to get to that bearish case that you think you've done. Warren, it's been a great pleasure. I've, I'm overrun, as usual, on the length of time. Um, a key question is, if people want to find your research and, and, and you know and find more from you, where should they look? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Warren Pies uh, is my handle, really simple. Uh, you can also go 314 Research on Twitter, which is uh, at 3F underscore research. 
on Twitter. And then our website is three, the number three, F-O-U-R-T-E-E-N research.com. Uh, and you can inquire there if you're interested. In general, we're institutional. So. Excellent. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. I'll try and improve my jokes. Those were t- some of those are terrible. Oh, they were, no, I think <laughs> they were great. They were awesome. I loved it. It's been a pleasure, man. Let's do it again. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. 